presumptions, it's rebuttable. But we have the general presumption versus what does this law specify otherwise? This law specifies otherwise. No, what it directs, Your Honor, is it directs that access to the data is governed by 201-091. It is directing everybody to look at 201-091 for how to access this data. The Data Practices Act generally governs access to government data. Here the legislature specified for this category of data, access is governed outside the Data Practices Act. Yes, absolutely. The, it does apply, but what it carves out is the general provisions. Now, there's general provisions and then there's remedies and penalties. The Secretary is not suggesting that the remedies and penalties for the DPA don't apply. So if, for example, the... the right. I would... I would I would assume that provision would continue to apply because there's nothing that specifies otherwise. That continues to apply as well. If they take an additional step. The, the, the safe at home is a, a, a far more detailed provision as to what that voter is required to do. Yeah, they, they may be able to pursue that under those limited circumstances, whereas the legislature specified under the last paragraph of subdivision four that any voter who believes or who fears for the safety of themselves or their families may just submit a written statement to remove their name from the public information list. That is correct. Registered voter lists are any lists of registered voters which are going to be provided uh, either to counties through the master list, through to law enforcement, uh, through a public information list, or to the public through a pu public information list. And subdivision nine somewhat clarifies this, that when we're talking about lists, it can be the public information list, it can be a list provided to law enforcement officials. Correct. Correct.
Justice Tyson, to just correct one thing. The master list is, is prepared for the currently registered voters in that county. I, I think the court needs to look at 201081, where it says the SVRS is the official record of all registered voters. The, the statute creates a permanent registration system. So even when a voter becomes deceased, the statute says you remove or you, you change the voter's status to deceased. They're still called a voter. When a registrant becomes inactive, you change their status to inactive. They're still registered in the system. So from the secretary's perspective, all the individuals in the database are considered registered voters for purposes of how this data is classified. Now, as far as the, the public or the master list, that's not available to the public. That, that's very detailed information. In fact, law enforcement can't even obtain the master list. What is available to the public, as specified by the legislature, is the public information list. And that has six items, uh, which are automatically, maybe potentially five. There's a May category in there as well. But those items are available to any registered Minnesota voter, but only for very specific purposes. It has to be for electoral, Council, political. Council, I want to go back to 13.607, which, as I understand it, is the sole provision the Secretary of State is relying on to contend that the information that was requested here and not provided is non-public. Your Honor, the Secretary is contending it's other than public by virtue Fine. of 13.607, 201.091, and, and 1301. So 13.67, in the other subdivisions, in, um, in subdivision 3 uh, and, four, and 3A and 4, um, the legislature uses the word classified in those subdivisions. In the subdivisions that you're relying on, subdivision 6, the legislature uses the word access. I'm wondering if that makes a difference. I don't think it makes a difference because that, that's, that's the other side of the coin. How data is classified controls its accessibility. Like, like I indicated earlier, data that is public is accessible. If it's not accessible, by definition, it's not public. So here, the legislature says this sacrosanct data, when we're talking about voter registration data, going back 60 years, access has been limited for very specific purposes. Now, in 1979, that's when the DPA requirement established the General Presumption for the Data Practices Act. And up until that time, uh, up until 1990, the law provided that the entire duplicate registration file, short of dates of birth, was accessible to the public. 1990, the legislature comes along and flips the script. Instead of having everything public but data, dates of birth, now it's six categories which are publicly accessible, and then there is some discretionary items added that under certain circumstances, the secretary can still produce that data. Council, I wanted to inquire. Um, respondents suggest in their brief that we don't really need to look at 201.091 because they did because and, and the discussion that you had with Justice Teeson about uh, what's what's a list what's the registered voter list and all that respondents seem to suggest that it's not about the list that they weren't looking for and did not request lists what they requested was uh, were data and I'm 
I'm having a little trouble, and we can maybe talk with Mr. Uh, with respondents about that, about that distinction. But in your mind, is there a distinction between data, which their argument is puts you into the General uh, Data Practices Act itself, and you don't even look at and consider what 201.091 talks about? Because there's there's some distinction. The district court drew that distinction as well. I can't remember if the Court of Appeals did, but the district court drew, drew that distinction as well. Justice Hudson, a list is a collection of data. To, to somehow construe that, well, if you're seeking data, 201-091 doesn't apply, at-risk voters, their data goes in, there doesn't need to be any further restrictions as far as what your, your, your intended uses are, who your identification is, that just completely renders moot the entire statutory structure. It's an absurd reading to suggest that there's a distinction between data and a list, because a list is a collection of data. And, and so from the Secretary's perspective, the, the, the problem with applying the Data Practices Act presumption here is it absolutely steamrolls the entire structure, moots all of 201091 subdivision 4, it moots the reason for the enactment back in 1990, it moots the, the 2005 amendment for at-risk voters, it moots the 2016 amendment related to the presidential nomination primary in the 2019 because... Is that really true? I mean, aren't those just exceptions where the legislature's been very clear? No, Your Honor, and this goes to the very construct of how this works because if the presumption applies. If the Data Practices Act presumption applies, the legislature specifies it must be classified as private or confidential. What you're not going to find in 201091 is any reference to data practices lexicon. You're not going to see the words not public, private, confidential. This is an absolute carve-out. The legislature understood what it was. The legislature at. knows how to do that when they're trying to carve something out. I mean, in 13.63, in retirement data, the legislature very clearly says this data is classified as private, and then they list what's private. They could have very easily done that here. They could have said all information about voter status is private. Correct. But they, they could have done that, but regardless, what the, the pursuit of what we're doing here is legislative intent. When the legislature establishes and, and specifies that access to this data is governed by 201091, and then it establishes a specific public information list which identifies those categories which are publicly accessible, that is the best indicator of legislative intent. And to determine that the, the presumption applies absolutely and improperly moots the entire public information list. Counsel, your statement that there's nothing in 201.091 regarding what's private or non-public is not quite right. Take a look at subdivision 4A, dealing with presidential primaries. That specifically says that's, that that list is private data on individuals as defined in the Data Practices Act. Correct, Justice Lilhog, and I misspoke. That is a 2019 amendment to the statute, which seems to be a reaction to the Court of Appeals opinion where the legislature determined that it no longer wished to have the presidential nomination primary data as public, where it established that in 2016. It said we need to have this information specifically listed to ensure it's public. In 2019, they had a change of heart. And likely in reaction to the Court of Appeals opinion uh, and its analysis that the presumption applied, it appears that the legislature then in 2019, just a short six months ago, seven months ago, said, no, we're gonna create this data as 
frankly, quasi-private, because it creates a new classification of data where it says that it's private, which means available to the individuals. So under your analysis, would that language about private data be superfluous because it would have been private data anyway? Yes. It would have been private, but it's still not private. So is the legislature goes, doing a belt and suspenders? Yeah, it still goes to the party chairs, so it's not private. Typically, under data practices, if data is private, it is only available to the subject. Now, that data is available both to the subject and to the party chairs. So it, it is a, a new classification legislature is created with with that presidential nomination primary data in reaction to the Court of Appeals opinion. But if the if your interpretation were correct, there would be no reason for the there would be no need for the legislature to have enacted subdivision 4A. Correct. But for the fact that in 2016, Justice Gilday, they specifically stated that the presidential nomination primary data is public. And, and that was, if, if the court looks through the legislative history, the legislature understanding that unless the data is specifically listed on the public information list, it's not publicly accessible. So when they created the, public, uh, the presidential nomination primary, they indicated your party choice is going to be public, creating a new classification in 2016. Counsel, um, let's, I want to make sure I know exactly what's before us. Your position, the state's position, is the Secretary of State has discretion to release otherwise non-public data. Now, the procedural posture of the case, as I understand it, is there's a this is a lawsuit seeking to enforce a data practices request. Is the question of whether the Secretary has abused his discretion in not releasing this data to the plaintiff, is that before us? I don't believe so, Justice Lahog. If you look at the complaint, it is solely in assertion that the data is public, that the Data Practices Act presumption applies, and therefore there is no discretion. So there was never an allegation that the Secretary abused his discretion in this particular case. Rather, it was the, the presumption under 1303 sub 1 applies, there's no classification that renders it private or confidential, so therefore give it to us. Respondent uh, ar argues um, that Harlow controls here. Uh, and Harlow, of course, is, as I recall, you know, seems to suggest that there needs to be a non-public designation. How, how, what's your view on that issue? If, if I'm recalling Harlow correctly, um, that, that dealt with a, a dual classification system. And, and no one's alleging that there's a dual classification here. The, the, the sole issue is whether the DPA presumption applies or whether the legislature specifically carved out voter registration data under 201-091. And so that's the issue before the court as to when there's a carve-out, how specific must the legislature be? Must the, must the legislature be more specific than saying these data are the public data? Is that specific enough to, to say the presumption does not apply? Counsel, you may have just answered this, but is it fair to say that the data in question falls into sort of a gray area under 201-091? I mean, you keep calling it sort of a carve-out, so I'm thinking your answer to that is, is no. But I'm just wondering, where, where's the starting point for the parties? Do, do the parties agree that this is sort of a gray area, that there is no um, express classification? Uh, that governs this data, or how, how would you characterize that? Justice Hudson, I would classify it as the phrase that the legislature has repeatedly used through the Data Practices Act, and that is other than public. 
it, it is, that is a, a non-defined term under 1302, where I think is we, we have all the definitions. But it's other than public, and public means it's publicly accessible under 1303 sub 1. And so here, you have it classified as that, and then you go to the statute. In this case, uh, 201091 subdivision 4 declares what is public. And then it creates this other classification of other information which may be provided uh, at the Secretary's discretion. And so that data is also other than public. Uh, 201091 doesn't use any of the lexicon until 2019 uh, from the Data Practices Act. Even Subdivision 9 says that a list produced under this section shall not include the following data. It doesn't say a, a, a list or that social security numbers or full dates of birth are private or confidential data. It just says the list produced under this section shall not include this data. So this is a complete carve out. Nothing in 201091 reflects that it's a data practices statute other than the fact that we get to let, 13. Let me ask you, counsel, and sorry to interrupt, but um, what purpose does subdivision um, nine meet then? If I sort of understood your argument that um, subdivision one makes clear that, that data in the system is not public, and then you have uh, subdivision four, which specifically says what data is. So what, what purpose does subdivision nine serve? Uh, Justice Chudich, the, the purpose of that is one of the checks on the secretary's discretion uh, to say that if there's any list produced, you can't have, uh, and those are lists to either law enforcement or under the public information list. No matter what, when the secretary exercises his discretion under, under subdivision four, those lists can't have dates of birth or social security numbers or another list of data. So it is a check on the secretary's discretion. Let me ask you about the discretion issue because if we agree with uh, the other side that the discretion simply means that he has concurrent authority to give certain information, does that, do you lose then, or is there a reading of the statute where the secretary would prevail, even if we find that, the, that he doesn't have this broad uh, discretion that you suggest he has? I'm not quite tracking your question, Your Honor. How important is the secretary's discretion to your argument? Because I see a statutory argument that sort of leaves that question aside. Right, and I see my time is up. My, my and I'm asking you, is that a correct uh, way of thinking about it? Uh, the discretion is an essential part of the interpretation and an essential part of the statute because the legislature said he may produce other information. The legislature did not say he shall or must produce the other information. So that the discretionary aspect is part of the entire classification structure that was created by the legislature. Can I just follow up, Chief? What bounds that discretion? Has he written any, has the secretary written any rules or provided any information about what bounds his discretion? Or is it just, I get to decide today that this person gets this information and tomorrow I decide that this other person doesn't get the information? There's, there's actually multiple bounds on that, Justice Thiessen. The first and foremost is that other information may only be released for electoral, political, or law enforcement purposes. Uh, there is also um, the restricted data in Subdivision 9 that Justice... All of which is satisfied in this case. Yeah. Um, and then if, if any person believes, uh, for example, that they're a protected class, and the secretary said, no, I'm only providing this data to women, you're a man, you're not getting it. Uh, or if they believe that the secretary has exercised his 
uh, will instead of his judgment, there is potentially either district court review or uh, court review at the Court of Appeals through writ under 606. But, but what would they, what would the court look to to say he's exercising his will versus not? You just have to have him called into court and depose him to say my intent here was to impose my will? Uh, I mean, there's no, there's no, he didn't issue any rules. Right. There, there are no rules on this, Justice Thiessen, but this is no different than when we look at, for example, 1339, when we're talking about investigative data, where the state officials may produce law enforcement data uh, to assist law enforcement purposes or to aid public safety or, or public health or safety. There is parameters, there is guidance given, and under those circumstances, a person can say, listen, here's the, the parameters provided. You're not giving me this data because I'm a, a person of color or because I'm a man or a woman or you're giving it to the Democrats but not the Republicans. All these would be issues which potentially could be brought up to, for judicial review in one venue or another. Um, counsel, I think this is along the discretion issue, but um, I am still trying to figure out, even after reading both sides' brief, when you, in, in subdivision four, when it says the Secretary of State may provide copies of the public information list and other information from the statewide registration uh, system, what is that? The other information, what falls into that category? The other information is everything in the SVRS you have, you have your public information list, the five, six categories there. Then you have your restricted data where it says social security numbers, full dates of birth, passport numbers, et cetera. The other information is everything in between. So it's, it, it's a part of that. You said there are like 19 fields, I think. So it's some of, it, it's a piece of those 19 fields. Correct. In other it's words. voter statuses. It's, it's reasons for challenges. It's email addresses. It's, it's all that information, which is the other information which the legislature has vested the secretary with discretion to produce by indicating. So voter status is in that. Voter status is absolutely in there. But your point is that that then kicks you, but then you have to kick over to 201. Correct. You, okay. you have to kick it, it. Voter status is not in the public information list. It's not in subdivision nine. It's in that middle category of the other information within the SVRS that the secretary may produce. Yes, Justice McKay. Counsel, I just want to make sure I understand your argument. So if you lose on the issue of um, discretion, which I think is the question Justice Chudich was asking, and I, I don't know that I caught your answer. If you lose on the issue of discretion, do you lose, period? Or is there a statutory construction argument that you would still survive on? If we lost on the issue of, of discretion, and I, I, I'm not conceding that issue by, by that, uh, I, I think that there's still a statutory construction element that gets the secretary there where you have to uh, interpret and, and give credence when two statutes conflict. You have to give credence to the specific statute as opposed to the general statute, along with the more recent statute versus the older statute. So I think under basic rules of statutory construction that that still does apply. What I'm suggesting with the, the reason for the Data Practices Act is it fully addresses how this works and how it's a complete carve-out where the, the um, legislature created this separate and unique structure unto itself uh, to regulate this very sacrosanct data. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Cardle.
May it uh, please the court, uh, Chief Justice and Associate Justice, this case involves public data in the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, a very important part of our unique democratic processes we have in Minnesota. This case specifically involves election data possessed by the Secretary of State, and we ask for the Court of Appeals decision to be affirmed. Uh, after listening to the discussion, I want to jump in to this idea of the, the specific Trump's the general and some of these statutory interpretive ideas. The state legislature has provided us with a way to approach code sections outside of Chapter 13. And this is the way that the, the legislature is working with the Supreme Court to figure out this important issue of what data is public. So 13.01 subdivision 5 relates to code sections outside Chapter 13. So when the state legislature has a section saying, this is how you read uh, the code sections outside Chapter 13, then we start there because the state legislature is aiding the court in understanding its legislative intent. It's almost like as a codification of a canon of statutory interpretation applicable to our state laws. So the state legislature says, this is the way to understand how we're writing our code sections. So there you see there are exceptions, but uh, 201.091 is not included in the exception. And the rule is, for code sections outside Chapter 13, which include 201.091, is that the presumptions apply. 13.03 applies. So when we read 201.091, we follow the statutory canon that's been provided by the state legislature to us. We must apply that presumption. And so there are a couple things on 13.607 argument before we move it to 1.091 we should mention. And they were already mentioned by the uh, justices, so I don't want to repeat it, but it's necessary to highlight it. One, uh, the access word, you know, can't alone 13.607 uh, classify the data as not public in light of 13.01 subdivision 5. Uh, the phrase registered voter lists doesn't even get close to overcoming the statutory canon 13.01 subdivision. Council, let me make sure I understand your argument about the relationship between 13.05 and 13.607. 13.05 subdivision 5 says, if you've got a section referenced outside it's, it's, that is codified elsewhere, it may classify government data as other than public or place restrictions on access to government data. Then when you look at 13.607, subdivision 6, it says access to registered voter lists is governed by section 201.091. So is it fair to say that 13.01, subdivision 5, gives you a methodology that is implemented by 13.607 as far as restricting access? Uh, yes, except in, in B to subdivision 5, it says that the, that the sections are governed by the definitions of general provisions in section 13.01 to 13.07. So, so you see that's been anticipated, what you brought up, uh, Justice, and that is that the, it's anticipated the legislature that there were these, actually there are dozens and dozens and dozens uh, of references to outside chapters in chapter 13. We know that, even in this section. So that's anticipated, exactly what you're saying. But the presumptions apply of 13.01 to 13.07 so, so the presumptions apply, and the Secretary of State in this case has to point to a provision that overcomes the presumption of statute. And that would, of course, we'd look in the other section for that. But so, there's no reason to spend any time on the 13.607 argument that that in itself you know, classifies the data 
as not public. I'm not sure. 13.607 subdivision 6 doesn't classify data. It restricts access. Am I right about that? Uh, it, 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 well, not according to uh, subdivision 5 at 13.01. The presumptions still apply, even though it's referenced in 13.607. Yeah, but it's a, it also says, as specifically otherwise provided by law, and 13.607 is law, and has a specific provision regarding access to registered voter lists. My questions assume, I know you've got the argument that data are not lists and lists aren't data, but I'm saying, isn't, isn't the purpose of 13607 subdivision six to restrict access? Uh, the purpose of 201.091, once we read it, is to require the, the county auditor to disclose uh, lists which are collections of data. So we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I appreciate that, that 13.607 refers to 201.091. Yeah. And so setting aside the text of 201.091. It doesn't just refer to it. It says it's governed by That's by right. So, so, so that governed by, so, so, but, but without going to 201.091 for the moment, we, we couldn't say without looking at 201.091 whether the data is public or, or not public. What we have is a presumption, and it says here, these sections are governed by the definitions and general provisions of section 13.01 to 13.07. So that, that's a threshold question. The presumption, according to subdivision five here, applies to 201.091. There, there's nothing contradicting that. And so the, uh, in, I guess, the, the and then we go to 201.091. Well, can look I just, for, you, you started with the registered voter list in the 607 as well. Right. What is that referring to? Because as I read 201.091, it's referring to a registered, the, the registered voter list is the stuff that gets entered from the application. And the stuff that was not disclosed by the secretary is nothing that anybody submits on a registration application, right? The, that comes from the DOC through the secretary of state into the database. And so, I mean, does that, does that give us a way to kind of resolve this issue that the public information list may be what it is, but this is not part of what the register, the stuff that was not disclosed is not part of the registered voter list at all because it wasn't submitted as part of the application from the voter? Uh, yes, I, I think that the, the way to read 201.091 within the context of registered list is to look at it as principally an instruction to county uh, auditors on what they need to disclose. And that, can be, you can read subdivision one and subdivision four both that way. And then when you get to subdivision four, the key sentence with the phrase may in it, um, then we see that the Secretary of State has a concurrent authority to provide copies of the public information lists. And um, with, uh, this is where Justice Lillog's earlier question really comes into play, right? This, this is, the, this is the, the big moment. And then we read in the, next, the rest of the sentence, and, and other information from the statewide registration system for uses related to elections, political activities, and so forth. So the question is, in the middle of the sentence, does the presumption apply? We know that the may means concurrent authority, but if the presumption applies at that key moment, then, well, I mean, then chapter 13 applies, right? The presumption, we're not, the, state, the Secretary of State won't even argue that this language, other information from the statewide registration system for uses related to elections and so forth, uh, classifies the data as, as not public, but that's 
really what has to be the argument it, it, because the presumption applies. So the may becomes a must, not because the, st the state legislature said in subdivision four, the may became a must. The state legislature said in 13.01 subdivision five that the presumption applies. So if the presumption applies at that moment, then the may is a must. Yeah, of course it is, right? I mean, we're asking for data. The data is, uh, there's voter records. These are voter records regarding uh, voter status, the reason for the challenge. It's, it's, it's data, it has to be made public. How can we take this sentence in light of the presumption and say it may means I don't have to? And, and that's basically the Secretary of State's argument. And I wanna to mention to the court how important this case is in getting this specific point right because there are you know, clerks at the townships, at the cities, at the watershed districts, the drainage authorities, the counties, uh, state agencies, they're watching this case and they wanna know with these other code sections, can they start arguing carve outs? And if the court believes as I do, the state legislature believes that the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act makes Minnesota unique in how we self-govern ourselves, then we need to continue to cooperate with the state legislature to make sure that the spirit of the Minnesota Government Data Act, Practice Act is played out. So I wanna go through one other thing. Council, so before you get ahead of steam on your next point, um, is the question, let's assume that um, the state is right, that you don't ha your clients don't have a right as a matter of law to get access to the data you're requesting, but that the Secretary of State has the discretion to provide the data. Is there a claim in the complaint that the secretary has abused his discretion in that regard? Uh, not, not, it wasn't pled in that way, no. Okay, I just yeah. wanted to figure out what, precisely right. what was before us. Thank you. Yeah, and, and so then with respect to how do we look at the other arguments regarding 201.091 and the argument that the data we're requesting is somehow excluded? Uh, this is sort of a separate question, but we need, we need to take it, take it, take, look at it. So. We have the voting records, the registered voters each have a unique number. We have these data fields, and we've mentioned the disputed data fields here that won't be produced are voter history, voter status, and the reason for the challenge. When we look at subdivision one, which is directed at the county auditor, there is a specification of information to be put into that list, and we should understand list to be a collection of data. And so here we have the name, address, and the date of birth. Subdivision four, for the public information list, it's a little different. There's a specification, name, address, year of birth, and voting history. So we, if we have a specification of data to be put into a list, how, how can the Secretary of State argue that means other things are excluded? I mean, it's just a specification of a list of data. It doesn't mean that something's public or non-public. Let's look at the withholding rules of the statute as well. Subdivision four, which was mentioned, the, the safe list, people who want to be safe and have uh, information kept private. We have the subdivision 4A with respect to primary preference, the 2019 amendment, and subdivision 9 with respect to social security number, military ID number, and so forth. In many of these instances, there are already rules in chapter 13 making that information uh, protected, non-public. Uh, non um, 13.045, the safe at home uh, sub subdivision, uh, and there are other provisions uh, in the chapter 13 regarding social security numbers. There are federal laws regarding uh, driver's data and social security numbers and so forth. But the important point here is these things are excluded. And so the Secretary of State is arguing 
well, these withholding rules also apply to these additional things. Well, that, that, that doesn't work, right? Because the instruction is don't produce these things, but they don't mention the things we're requesting. In fact, so, the things that so are counsel, listed. Let me we're not understand requesting. the implication of your argument as it relates to the Safe at Home program. As I understand your argument, um, the exclusion of, of, of Safe at Home information from the from the public information list is not does not prevent a domestic abuser, for example, from making a data practices request for the same information. The, the it's not public data, and so the safe at home would restrict the public officials from producing that data because it's not public. Well, it just says it must withhold from the public information list. So are you saying that withhold from the public information list means it's non-public data? I think that's contrary to the argument you've been making all along and made in the Court of Appeals. Right. The argument we're making is that the 20.091 uh, exclusions regarding withholding information apply to requests for uh, public information lists, and they apply to requests for master lists. So the, the withholding rules or exclusions here in 201.091 would be expected to be somewhat duplicative. They're protective of people's uh, information. But the point yeah, is I, that I read the transcript of your argument in the Court of Appeals, and in response to questions from Chief Judge Clary, I think you had quite a different answer. You just said, that's going to be something the legislature is going to have to fix. The, 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 Right, I go to your point. Uh, if there's an issue here, it needs to be fixed, but it's not relevant to our requested information. So my argument with respect to the exclusions under 201.091, the withholding rules are, we're not requesting that information, and within the list of excluded data, uh, we're not requesting that either. So Council, isn't that relevant to the legislature's intent about whether it really did um, exclude or restrict certain data by this by um, 201.091 because uh, under your argument if the county auditor and the secretary of state withhold um, from the public information list the name of the person who sought the safe at home it would be discoverable anyway and that just seems to me to be uh, wrong right in, in, the in the first instance uh, there may be issues uh, not relevant to our uh, claims that may need to be fixed and amended. Uh, the, with respect to how we approach the statute, and I appreciate uh, the perspective that that aspect might be wrong, is that you have to go back to 13.01 subdivision 5 and, you know, and follow the course. And the course is, the presumption is that the data is public unless, you know, the law states that it's not public. And so there isn't this, you know, the Secretary of State is coming in and saying the specific trumps the general, you get to choose well, and, which, and which hasn't the, provisions apply. hasn't the legislature already fixed that problem by adopting 13.045, which is an application to the Secretary of State to keep all data private, which is essentially the same thing that is captured in, in tool 1.091. I mean, in 2013, the legislature adopted the Safe at Home program broadly for all, generally for all public data. Right. Is this really an issue that we have to worry about? Right. It's, it's doubly protected uh, both ways. And as with the Social Security numbers, which are probably triply protected because of the federal law. But uh, nonetheless, um, there is this 
you know, fundamental disagreement. Uh, uh, well, I, I guess maybe a way to ask, ask the, the not on that issue particularly, but the Secretary of State characterizes your argument as being, we just want all this to be public. But that's not really what your argument is, right? We want the, uh, the court to follow the state legislature's uh, uh, directions with respect to interpreting code sections outside Chapter 13. The state legislature provided in 13.01 Subdivision 5 a way to approach this. Um, you know, and it, it's quite straightforward, and that is um, we, the legislature doesn't want the court to be viewing these things as a specific trumps the general or whatever idea earlier trumps the later or the later trumps the earlier. The, the, the point is the state legislature wants the court to apply the presumption. And so the presumption is that the data is public and then the state legislature is supposed to be left room to go and change the law if something should be not public. And it kind of brings about this point when we're talking about big things like the judicial department and the legislative department that the legislature understands this just like, like the court does. And so they put something together like 13.06. 13.06 is an opportunity for the Secretary of State to petition the commissioner uh, to uh, have the data temporarily classified as not public. And then the, the, even this, the temporary classification gives the state legislature an opportunity to deal with that. So everyone's of good faith here. Let's say with respect to the concerns about stalkers and so forth, that if the double or triple protections aren't sufficient, then the Secretary of State has the opportunity to petition uh, the Commissioner of Administration temporarily classify the data and the law could be changed. And so the, the idea is that all this cooperation between the, this department, the Judicial Department, and the Legislative Department is intended to keep this unique process that we have in Minnesota, and that is the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, and to keep that going so that the people can govern themselves, and that's what makes Minnesota unique. We're doing so well because we... Does Harlow have any significance here? I asked uh, opposing counsel about your position on Harlow. Maybe you could take a second to address that. Uh, yes, I think Harlow and KSTP have significance in the first instance because the court is addressing the Minnesota Government Data Practice Act. And that's, that's very important. And then secondly, uh, the court is focusing on, this, uh, on whether um, there are these uh, carve-outs or exceptions to uh, data being public. So both Harlow and KSTP have a role to play here, but this is, I think, um, a, another case that adds to those two cases in the idea that the Supreme Court takes the Minnesota Government Data Practice Act as a serious building block for our unique self-governing process. In other words, the state legislature has said making government data public is so important that the Supreme Court is taking these cases and establishing the rules. And Harlow and KSTB create a foundation, and hopefully this case will too, in the idea that this is the way state officials are supposed to read chapter 13. This isn't an instance where the court writes an opinion and it's just appellate court judges and trial court judges and lawyers reading this. By gosh, it's all the state, all the officials, local officials, county officials, state officials, and they're gonna follow your opinion on this and then they're going to apply it. So the notion of the government, well, let's start with carve-outs and talk about you know, ambiguity, ambiguity and whether there's a carve-out here or there, it's gotta be precise. No, the citizens 
need precision so they get the data. My experience has been that when people are criticizing the government, despite the Minnesota Government Data Practice Act, it's very difficult to get the data. So this is a case in point. Council, let me understand the practical implications of your client's position. Um, do you agree with counsel for the state as to um, the list of things that have been withheld from your clients? Uh, well, we're, we're in the tough spot. So you always get asked that question, but you don't know what you're what they actually have, but yeah, yeah but generally, I mean, they, they generally, say, they say they're withholding voter status, reason for challenge, and email, and voter history. And, I think and voter, voter ID. So, uh, is the practical implication of your client's position that the secretary needs to produce to your client, for political purposes, all of the email addresses in the statewide voter registration database? Uh, 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 no, we're saying that under the Minnesota Government Data Practices Act, Chapter 13. We're entitled the public data they have, including the email addresses. So the Secretary of State would have to produce all the email addresses in the SVRS? Whatever public data the Secretary of State has. So the answer to my question yes. is, oh, okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah. Can I just clarify, so was the voter ID, were the voter IDs produced? Uh, the, the, vote, uh, the voter ID, ID numbers, uh, I believe, were produced okay. as part of it. And can, uh, do, but do you know but that, that's a, actually, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Justice? Yeah. I. That requires some clarification on an important issue, and that is that the position of the Secretary of State is that you only get the active voters and you don't get the inactive voters. So it's the difference between you know, a million or a million and a half uh, records. And so it's, a, it's a very strange because our view is the registered voters is everyone that has a unique uh, you know, voting record file. So each, each registered voter has a file, unique number, and has these different data fields. The Secretary of State has taken the position that only if you're, you know, today ready to vote without further supplementation, that that's the active voter. That's the only information you're going to get. And you know, and I, of course, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not politicizing things by saying inactive voter information is incredibly valuable to political participants. And it's, it's, it's incredibly valuable because those are the people who aren't eligible to vote. And so we want that information to get out to our people. And we, we want it to get out to people so they can know who's not able to vote. And so the Secretary of State's position is we don't share inactive voter records with the public. And I find that so contrary to how we operate in Minnesota. If someone isn't registered to vote, my, my, my sibling, my, my cousin, my neighbor, I should be able to know, and I should be able to go to that person and ask them to get ready to vote. Council, um, clearly your clients have a political reason for wanting the data, but let's take, let's say um, Amazon or Google would like to have the data on everybody's email address in the SVRS. Under your interpretation of the Data Practices Act, would they need to use this information only for a political election-related purpose, or could they use it for, for their own kind of marketing? Well, uh, general, yes, they could get the names and addresses, but they already can, and that information... I'm talking it, about the email addresses. Oh, the email addresses. Um, yeah, they could get the email addresses, the okay. same way we could. So you're, you're under your position, they could get email addresses not for political purposes, but for their own kind of marketing purposes. Yeah, whatever the government collects and maintains is okay. public data. Um, and getting back to the point on the inactive uh, voters, uh, so it, one of the concerns I have, just uh, being practical, is that the discretion 
I can, the Secretary of State, I can give the information to whoever I want, and then the inactive voter information, that that's incredibly valuable information to a political campaign, that's like money. You know, it, it, I mean, it's like having an advantage over the other side of who's inactive and being able to go out and run a registration campaign. And so one of the concerns when we give public officials discretion like that, that doesn't sound like Minnesota. I mean, it, you know, okay, so the Secretary of State has discretion so that they can favor one campaign by giving them the inactive voter list while telling everyone else, no, you don't get that information. So, so that is so foreign to our, the way we operate in Minnesota, our public officials, that we need to stop it here. And unfortunately, it, it seeped up you know, pretty high here to the state official, the state attorney general's office, now the Supreme Court. Now, I've seen those type of arguments, of course, at the township level, the city level. But everyone's watching. The people at the local government watch what the court does. They watch what the attorney general's office does. And the, those public officials will follow the examples set here. And so we need to make clear, I think, that that kind of discretion doesn't exist under the statute. Finally, with respect to the Minnesota uh, Voters Alliance, we, we, the purpose for them is that election integrity and credibility are fundamental to the public's willingness to be governed and the data the Minnesota Voters Alliance has requested is critical to assessing both. There is therefore an immense public interest in knowing what election officials are doing, and this court should do everything possible to serve that goal. We ask the court to affirm the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank, thank you, counsel. Mr. Kaiserschott, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. So what's your argument for withholding the inactive voters? What's the statutory language argument for that? The statutory language for that, Justice Thiessen, is uh, starting again from the point that the public information list controls what is accessible. Uh, the public information list is a distilled version of the master list. The master list specifically says it is the currently registered voters uh, in the county. The public information list then goes on to say uh, specifically that they must be registered in that county for that data to be produced. When a voter is deceased or becomes inactive, they're removed from both the public information list, the master list, and they're not included in polling place rosters, uh, even though they're still registrants under the statute and even though is, the statute... Is there a definition of registered voter in our statutes? There, that term is not expressly defined, no, but the legislature specifically continues to use the word registered and voter when it talks about deceased individuals and inactive individuals. So by... So, so the legislature uses the word registered voter to, to so deceased individuals fall within registered voter? Correct. So why is that not a registered voter then? According... <laughs> The, 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 they, they still are a registered voter for purposes of the SVRS. All, all 5.5 million individuals in the SVR, SVRS are considered registered voters. For purposes of the public information list and the master list, you have to be currently registered in the county. But if, if, a, but if, if inactive voters are registered voters, according to the legislature, then the current list of registered voters, why, I, I still am not. Just the word current changes that? 
the, the temporal, current, and the association and affiliation with the county, as well as Justice Thiessen, there's another provision which allows any voter to remove their name from the SVRS. And in that instance, the legislature specifies that you change their status to inactive. To give that provision any meaning, it has to have some type of legal effect. So I'm, I'm confused. Are deceased people registered voters? I mean, they may vote in Chicago, but they don't typically vote in Minnesota. <laughs> Are they, are they or are they not registered voters under 201091 subdivision 4? Justice Lilhog, to the extent that they're in the SVRS, they are registered voters. There's no mechanism to take them out. And uh, one of the provisions, when it talks about deceased individuals, you t change the voters' status to deceased. So the legislature talks about them in the sense of that they're still voters and that the legislature also talks about them as they're still registrants. So in that sense, yes, they're still part of the database and they fall into the other information uh, within the SVRS, uh, which the secretary has discretion to produce. So can I, can I just clarify? So is your argument that registered voters, that the inactive and deceased voters are not registered voters that need to be disclosed because the statute says so or because it's within the secretary's discretion not to disclose that information? Because the public information list specifies that it is for the register for the voters in that county. The, the, these folks aren't appearing. So it's, it is the statutory language of the voters in that county? Yes. Okay. As, um, as well as other provisions with, within that, uh, Justice Thiessen, that we're trying to reconcile all of the, the provisions of, that allow the voters to remove their name from the uh, SVRS, that, that, that changes uh, deceased voters for, to deceased, uh, th their statuses. So can you explain the public policy argument that if this information about uh, that people were challenged uh, and that the basis for the challenge was public would somehow discourage people from registering to vote? Can you, I, I, I don't quite get that argument, why that would be the case. I, it seems like that's one of the, someone made that argument, maybe it was the ACLU, but. Sure, the, 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 the idea, Your Honor, is that if you are going to set forth uh, and exercise your elective franchise, uh, knowing that you're going to be, all your data, no matter what, is going to be uh, subject to public scrutiny, that that may, uh, discourage people from participating in that process. And that, whereas that is a policy decision, I fully agree with you, Justice Thiessen, that is a policy decision. That's a policy decision for the legislature. If the legislature wanted to include voter status uh, on the public information list to identify that, hey, this person is challenged and everybody should be able to know that, they would do that. But instead, what they did, Justice Thiessen, on polling place rosters, you actually have to conceal the fact that, that But that was only in 2017. Before that, that was all that was public information. That law wasn't changed until 2017. So for I, many I, years, while this statute's been in place since 2000, when 607 was adopted, and, that and, was public information on the polling register. I I would disagree with that. That 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 was public information. I think that that was the legislature clarifying that. Hey, public. How do you know it's clarification instead of changing the law? Uh, because Hennepin County clearly thought that it was public information because they shared those voter lists with that information on it. Well, and what Hennepin County does, uh, their interpretation, if they're sharing uh, data which is not public, is not binding on uh, Who prepares Wright County. The polling? Who prepares the polling place roster? Oh, gosh, that one is beyond my okay. wheelhouse. Sorry. 
Uh, but, but Justice Lilhog, what I did want to uh, respond to when I got up here, you were, were attempting to articulate that the public information list only identifies that data on the application. And first and foremost, I want to say that's, that's not accurate because it includes voting history. There is no voting history on the application. That is something that occurs later and after the fact, as well as voting districts. So this other information that the Secretary has is but not But voting solely. history is not in the master list. Uh, the voting history, the master list identifies certain categories which are on the master list, and then it has kind of a ellipses, dot, dot, dot. So the record isn't entirely clear as to what is on the master list per se as to whether voting history is there. But well, it just says the master list was, is, must be created. It's created by entering each completer voter registration application received by the county auditor into the statewide registration system. So that seems like the master list is the stuff that's on the application. Some of that stuff is, is certainly on the application, yes. But what is the, the additional information which is on the voter, on the master list, uh, the record isn't clear on that point. But what is clear is that voting history is on the public information list. And that is not on the application. So to try to equate the public information list to what's solely what's on the application, uh, you can't do it. It just doesn't fit. Well, no, I mean, it could fit because you can, the public information list could be information that's on the master list and then this additional information. Correct. That's so that, that the lot, I mean, I don't know that the logic you just used worked. Okay. Okay. In any event, another point I want to address with my limited time I have left is this idea of the safe at home program being a substitute for the last paragraph in subdivision four. And whereas the safe at home program does exist, the last paragraph of subdivision four really brings it home why the, the Data Practices Act does not apply. And, and that is giving voters who just simply fear for the safety of their families or themselves to submit a written statement. And it doesn't say that the data is private. It doesn't say it's confidential. It doesn't use any of the DPA terms. It just says you remove that data from the public information list. To give that provision any effect, you have to carve out the entire uh, 201-091 from the Data Practices Act and realize that it is a structure unto itself because uh, otherwise when uh, you, you're creating, as, as Mr. Cardell has conceded, that data suddenly is public. Regardless of these people who fear for their safety, their express choice that they, they, they've relied on in the statute to say, withhold my name, I'm, I'm afraid of a stalker, a domestic abuser, suddenly their information is suddenly turned over under their interpreta interpretation of the statute. And, and that's just an absurd result. And that, that cannot be the law because... What, what, uh, what is the application of the Safe at Home Act? How is that different from what they... Because that's submitted to you. You're the custodian of this uh, 100.5B, right? The Secretary of State. And then the information under this law is a statement, basically, that you feel unsafe. I, I don't understand. There, there, Since you're the person that's getting both, what's the difference in those applications? Uh, they're substantially different programs, Your Honor. 13.045 specifies exactly how you must do it, and it has a, a, a significant amount of other um, avenues that, 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 that have to participate for that program. For purposes of this statute, it, it doesn't say uh, safe at home program. If, if the legislature wanted to do that, in fact, the 2005 amendment really opened the doors to allow people 
to include this data or to, to remove their name uh, much easier than it was prior to 2005. Prior to 2005, they had to have a court order to remove their data from the public information list. Starting in 2005, you just had to submit a statement. So that really provided a, a greater opportunity for those voters who felt at risk to remove their name from the public information list and to declare that suddenly, well, that's all moot because, uh, sorry, the presumption applies uh, is, would just be really unfair to those particular folks. Thank you, Council. Thank you. Thanks.